0: Councillor Ann Thompson was elected in Tullhurst for the first time this year. She joins me, Robert Hogg, for our B-Radio series, speaking with local politicians in Reading. You're a translator, you speak Azerbaijani, Russian and French. What drove you to want to become a translator?
1: Several different things, I think. Um, I w- always enjoyed languages at school, um, and so when I was thinking what I wanted to study at university, I found it hard to make my mind up. But by studying languages, you can actually study a whole lot more. You study the language, the grammar, you can study history, literature, culture. Uh, it's a window on another world, really, learning a language. So um, that sort of set me off on the translating track. I studied Russian and French uh, at Cambridge. Um, Russian was new to me, so that was uh, really you know, exciting. I wanted to do something that was new for me. Um, and then... I took a work path uh, that involved translation, not always translation, it was work involving what was the Soviet Union initially, and then Russia. Uh, I worked for an educational charity, I worked for, uh, and then did ver- various short-term jobs, and then I moved to Reading to work for uh, BBC Monitoring at Caversham Park, as they were then. That was back in 1990, uh, and then I translated, did editing work, translating And then worked for the BBC abroad. I was lucky enough to work for monitoring in Moscow, and then I went out to Azerbaijan to open an office. And I loved being there, it was great. So I stayed 20 years in the end. I went for two years, and I stayed for 20, and that's where I learned Azerbaijani. And then I came back to Reading because that was, this is my, still see see this as my base, my home. Uh, It's a good
0: place to be. You mentioned you worked at the BBC Monitoring Centre, which was conveniently located in Gavisham, set up originally in 1939 to monitor Nazi broadcasts. It's evolved a lot since then. Could you tell us about about what you did for them?
1: Yes, well, I started work um, as really what you call a sub-editor or copy editor. uh, And I was looking uh, as part of a team. We produced a printed, it was in those days, bulletin of... Uh, news which had been translated, monitored, translated from the Soviet media. And so we'd be selecting things, r- putting things together, just checking them, uh, uh checking the English. Um and, and it was a fascinating time because it was the era of Gorbachev, Glasnost, Perestroika, then there was the coup. When um ab- well after the coup after after the sort of collapse of the Soviet Union, it became possible for uh, monitoring to open up offices in Russia and other countries, which during the um, communist era it hadn't been possible to do. Um, which is how come I was able to go and work in Russia, listening, translating from uh, TV broadcasts that were only that we could only access over there. And then the decision was taken to open an office in the Caucasus, um, and so I went to Azerbaijan. And so, um, and so there, obviously, by then it was also managerial job training. Um, Finding the sources of news, getting to know the local media, that sort of thing. Um, very, um, very enjoyable job and a very um, interesting employer.
0: You also used your translation skills to work with community organisations and children's charities in the UK and abroad. What does that entail?
1: Oh, well, that's um, well, abroad was probably more when I was actually working in living in Azerbaijan. Um, I uh, worked with, or oh, I active in my local church, which was actually of local people, not really one for foreigners. And so we organised summer camps every year for children uh, and young people, and also including uh, disabled children and young people, because it was harder for them to um, get out and about or have opportunities to uh, relax over the summer. And then when I came back, I became a trustee of a charity called Child Aid uh, to Eastern Europe that focuses also on working with children in Ukraine, Moldova and Belarus and that's working with children disadvantaged in different ways either through poverty, uh, disability, illness, family problems. That, um, and so Well, sadly the work has sort of changed remarkably in the past year because it's been helping people survive basically um, uh, with all that's going on in Ukraine. So. Um, and what was useful as a trustee in that charity, having worked in Azerbaijan with people also understanding how um, people can make use of aid, how to help people, encourage them to be able to uh, solve some of their own problems rather than having to depend on other people to help them. And that's always you know, a problem for all of us. We all like to, someone else to come and help us solve our problems. But having a bit of help to see how what we can do ourselves is it, really useful.
0: What are your thoughts on the current situation in Ukraine? Do you see much hope?
1: Well, it, I'm worried that it will drag on for a long time. Um, that it it might reach well. What, what's happened in other conflicts in other parts of um, involving Russia in other parts of the former Soviet Union is that they they reach a sort of a stalemate. Um, and some kind of ceasefire might be agreed, but it would only it wouldn't be the resolution to the conflict. it would just be a sort of temporary ceasefire that's a possibility but then you know at what stage ukraine could be would be prepared to agree that i don't know um it's hard to see how it's going to end at the moment um because of course both both sides having their own interests um because because uh, Russia will want to, however it stops, Russia will want to save face and so they will want to sh- have gained something. Nuclear Ukraine, you know, they fought so well and they're put, um, they will want at least to get back to the borders that they had before the, this round of the conflict started. Um, and that's just very hard to see how that's, when that's going to happen.
0: Do you think in the run-up to Ukraine since 2014, pol- politicians in the UK have perhaps had their Heads turned away from Russia too much, um, allowing Russians to invest in the UK.
1: I mean, I think it started before 2014, really. Um, I, um, I think various mistakes were made um, in terms of relations with uh, Russia, both you know, right, going right back into the 90s, into trying to build maybe a more positive relationship, um, which wasn't built and since then i think yes i think very little attention was paid to russia in the west um particularly in britain um, and then particularly in countries like germany which are ironically so dependent on russia but they um and now they are sort of caught in this position you know we've got sanctions on russia but they're selling so much oil and gas you know russia's not suffering price inflation like we are you know it, it's kind of West didn't really look and became dependent on Russia without thinking about it. It's often, ta- often saying the right words like energy security, multiple sources of energy, but actually not doing anything about it, um, depending on Russia wholly, I mean, even to the extent that there was a plan, well, I we mean, now say 10, 15 years ago, quite well advanced for a new gas pipeline going from the Caspian from Azerbaijan to ultimately to Vienna, to the main gas hub. And in the end, the European side said, you know, we don't really need it. We don't want it. We've got enough gas from Russia, although they still said that diversifying supplies was their aim. But so yes, we took Europe took their eye off the ball, and so did Britain. I think
0: you've also recently translated a book called Days of the Caucasus. Um, who is that about? You've also got a sequel coming out.
1: Yes, no, that's uh, that's a memoir. It's a great memoir. reads reads more like a novel, um, and it's uh, it's the recollections of. Uh, young woman who grew up in Azerbaijan before the Russian Revolution. Um, so this is the country Azerbaijan Azerbaijan's between Iran and Russia. Um, but it was in the Russian Empire uh, in those days. And her family was extremely wealthy because her grandfather had found oil in his little plot of land. Um, and this was the time of the oil boom. Baku as a city was growing tremendously. And it's story about her life and the clash of um, cultures as well, because she came from. You know, her grandmother was from a very traditional uh, Shia Muslim culture, but her uh, her father, her mother died soon after she was born. Her father, you know, was uh, was much more uh, secular in outlook. Um, their family much more influenced. The fashions influencing Azerbaijan were coming much more from Russia and from France, from Paris. And so it's about how she grew up in this sort of conflict of cultures, and then how they lost. Well, they they had to flee Azerbaijan in uh, 1917. Uh, they fled to Iran and then they were able to return. And then how uh, what happened to the family um, when the Bolsheviks came um, after sort of three years, well, two years in which Azerbaijan was an independent republic and her father was a minister in the government. Um, then the Bolsheviks came, took everything. They lost everything, imprisoned her father. Um, I won't say the rest because that would spoil the story. I translated uh, her second memoir which is about uh, living in Paris um, because she ended up she fled to Paris and joined a huge number of um, refugees from the Russian Empire Uh, but she sort of settled well into life in Paris in many ways but it's 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 a fascinating story and actually there are quite a lot of you know sadly parallels even with today when she's talking about the influx of refugees in Paris coming from you know from the former Soviet, well from the from the former Russian Empire as it then was. Uh, so yeah, so it's very exciting that the the sequel's coming out in January.
0: Sounds really uh, fascinating. Are there any challenges in translating a memoir while uh, simultaneously trying to maintain its tone and its intention?
1: That's kind of it. That's I found it takes a while, I think, at first, I noticed more with the first book to sort of get into the author's voice to sort of feel that you're writing in English in equivalent. Funny enough, she actually, she wrote the memoir in French because that was the language she felt most comfortable writing in. Um, And sort of, so to feel a sort of a similar English, to to get something vaguely equivalent, but of course she was, well, she wrote it, it was published in the 1940s, so she wrote it probably mainly in the 30s and 40s, recalling an earlier period. And of course I'm writing in English in, you know, 21st century, so it's not quite the same as even if it had been translated uh, at the time. Um, But yes, finding the voice is the main challenge, really. Um, And I think that probably goes for most sort of forms of literary translation.
0: Moving to your role in local politics, a subject that often considers how frequently bins should be emptied and whether or not potholes have been mended. So why should local politics matter to young people, given that they're less likely to vote?
1: Well, I'd say politics matters to everyone because politics takes decisions about our lives and what's going to happen to us. And if we're not involved, if young people aren't involved in those decisions, the decisions will still be taken and they'll be taken by someone else. And while it might be a decision about the bins, which actually doesn't... Kind of, everyone will find bins. The bins do affect them if they're not being collected. But while it might be something that seems relatively, you know, minor or low level, also, but it it starts. You can say starts with the bins, but it could be any aspect, say, of a young person's life. You know, it's politicians who take decisions about education, about funding, about university grants or not, about costs of studying. Um, So. I'd say to young people: Yes, get involved because this is going to affect you. And decisions taken now will affect you more than they'll affect someone who's older, who's got less time to live with the result of these decisions than young people have.
0: Do you think politicians should try to attract young people by going on reality shows like I'm a Celebrity?
1: Not when they're meant to be doing another job. (laughs) I don't think they should. If they if they are free, if they are not working, then that's um, up to you know. Then they're entitled to do what yep, by all means do whatever they feel they would like to do. Um, but I think if you're actually meant to be working, they have plenty of holiday at other times of year, if you're an MP, then I think you should be available for your constituents.
0: You've become a councillor for the first time this year. have you found it?
1: Yeah, fascinating. Um, I've enjoyed it very much. I am enjoying it. I've learnt a lot and I've still got a lot to learn um, about how things work as well, how decision it's on the one hand it is how how things work how the budgets work where the money comes from how decisions are taken um when there is discussion when there isn't how you know each and every council will be different i'm sure you know how each individual council works um so no it's it's very enjoyable and it's actually great to um because my particularly because my work is sort of largely me and a computer these days it's really good to get out and talk to people um, talking to people in entire House, finding out what their concerns are. And it can be potholes and it can be the bins and it can be other, you know, other things as well. Um, it's really, yeah, I, I found that aspect very enjoyable.
0: So being out and about, is that what drove you to become um, a local councillor or were there other motivations there as well? That was
1: part of it and it was also, I just felt that the general state of affairs in the country is just so... Um, so many things seem not to be working properly, seem to be in a mess, um, and then I find myself getting regularly frustrated with the news, with politicians, and so I thought, well, I should try and do something if I feel so strongly, try and do something myself. Um, so that was that's largely the motivation.
0: Your priorities are affordable housing and protecting green spaces from further development. Why do these issues matter to you?
1: Well, they matter a lot. I think to the community as a whole because without affordable housing uh, you know a lot of young people people who grow up uh, in Reading in Tilehurst, they can't actually afford to stay there because they don't you know the house prices are simply so high um, and so much property has you know been bought up bought to rent uh, and so those rents are high too um, so I think it's very important for you know for a healthy community that people should be able to stay if they want to stay um, so I think that's so, you know, that means affordable housing is crucial, and especially for young people, but for everyone. And as we're seeing now with the current financial crisis, you know, mortgages will go up and private rents are going up. You know, we need more housing that, um, in which people can feel secure about how much they have to pay for it as well, whether it's in rents or mortgages, to know they can afford it. So I think that's really important for everybody's
0: lives. As a councillor, do you feel that... You either directly or indirectly have enough power or influence to uh, make a change in these areas.
1: It's a good question. Um, influence to hopefully contribute to a change. Um, you know, I'm I'm a Lib Dem councillor, and we've there are three Lib Dems uh, on Reading Council. Reading Councils got you know, Labour have a comfortable majority, so yeah, you know, in practical terms, obviously they they can make decisions and they don't even really have to listen to anyone else but that's not to say they wouldn't listen to anyone else and that arguments can be made and put forward and, and this is one of my colleagues often says you know if, if something's a good idea we need to put it forward and if another party takes it if it gets done that's what matters more than anything um, it's not, um so i think so we can make a contribution
0: put it that way uh, could you tell us a bit about the difference between being a councillor and being an mp
1: well, I, I know more now about being a councillor. <laughs> um, I suppose with a councillor, okay, it's just, you're responsible directly for for one ward, so that's small, that's, that's one thing. Um, what makes it easier, I think, certainly, within being a councillor, and it would depend on each circumstance, is that you are part of a team. So we're a small team for our, and we're sort of lucky in Tilehurst. We're three Lib Dems, it's a very sort of liberal minded area. and so we can work together, support one another, um, g- get advice, outside ideas, and also offer former councillors who, you know, retired but who still who, you know, f- uh, know a lot and are able to give help. Whereas I think sometimes with an MP maybe it's harder because they're the one person responsible for their constituency. So, of course they have their team of people, but it's not quite the same. And of course as an MP you're discussing and working on much wider range of issues, a wider range of um, uh, Questions so much m- much more than you would be as a councillor, but maybe you see less of the nitty gritty as an MP. I mean, I think obviously as an MP, from what I can see, I haven't been one, so I can't <laughs> give the full um, comparison. But you're much more um, well. It's a, fu- a full time occupation completely, and I think it can sort of take over uh, your life if you're not careful. If you're an MP, especially. But some of the principles are the same, the basics of talking to people, knowing what people are thinking, what they want in your constituency, um, how you can help them. Um. So there are similarities, but uh, but I think the pressure on, MP, on MPs is greater.
0: You also mentioned earlier that you're a Liberal Democrat. In Westminster, the third largest party is entitled to ask two questions during the most anticipated event. In Westminster, politics every week, Prime Minister's Questions... As a Liberal Democrat, that opportunity used to be afforded to your party. However, the Scottish Nationalist Party, led in Scotland by Nicola Sturgeon, is given this privilege. Why do you think the Lib Dems don't have as much traction nationally as they used to? Yeah,
1: it's a good question. It's part, I think that might partly also be sort of circular in the sense that the more exposure you have, the more you're seen on TV or asking questions in uh, Prime Minister's Question Time, the more people um, think about the party and the more traction it gives you um but i think from talking to people there's a lot of interest and support in for the the lib dems at the moment i think i mean it's it's hard to say because we've not had you know like a, a nationwide poll um but I, my feeling is that probably our support is slightly greater say than the polls put it at the moment but i can't say that for sure um and I think it is partially as well that people... It's also partly the problem of our voting system. There's a lot of people vote uh, or they find themselves in a position where they might be voting to make sure uh, the candidate in their constituency doesn't get in rather than for the person they'd really like to get in. And I think the Lib Dems do suffer from um, that sometimes, that people uh, want... They, they want to be sure that their... Um, Depending on the constituency, they might want to be sure that a certain person, you know, one party or the other doesn't get in, so they won't vote for the Lib Dems because they think they've got less of a chance of getting in, if you see what I mean.
0: Yes, that's like a reflection of the fact that we've got a first-past-the-post system whereby one candidate wins in a given area, whoever has the most votes. Would you prefer to see a system where there's proportional representation?
1: I'd prefer that, definitely. Because I mean, I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it's um, a golden bullet in the sense that you know people still have to form these coalition governments and work together. But I, I think it would be much. It's much better because I think people would then know that their vote does count. Um, whoever they want to vote for, they can vote for uh, that party. And I think if we could move towards a more consensus. Based form of politics where we've not got one party, you know, even the physical setup that we have at Westminster at the moment, which is sort of so antagonistic of one party versus another, just something a little more uh, meeting in a horseshoe rather than facing off, if you see what I mean, just to, so that uh, to encourage uh, more collaboration and more uh, consensus based politics. But I think that's so much in the tradition, the Westminster tradition goes against that, that it would be difficult. Um, and I appreciate that forming coalition governments can be very difficult. But if people are willing to talk and to think and to negotiate, then I think we would end up with decisions being taken that are far closer to what the majority want. Um, it wouldn't be everything. It wouldn't be this sort of idea of winner takes all um, and tough luck on everyone else. Um, Because at the moment, whoever has the majority, the party with the majority of seats never has more than 50% of the vote. And so that in itself isn't really, you know, as as a reflection to say, oh, this is what the people want. We don't actually know that necessarily all the time. So I think more discussions of trying to find, you know, a a third way through some of the, the toughest political issues would be much better for the country.
0: Even though the policy came in, I think, about 10 years ago, one of the things that the Lib Dems still get blamed for, particularly by young people, is tuition fees. Going forward, do you think that uh, the current system works or does it need to be changed?
1: I think it would... Certainly, I think review would be good. I mean, I'm not an expert on um, tuition fees. um, But I know, obviously, I know of that... Uh, uh, of the problem uh, of pledging one thing and then not doing it and doing the exact opposite. Um, I think education needs to be looked at because it does seem so unfair that the, vo- the amount that students have to pay back, uh, the way interest is calculated on loans, there's many um, things which I think should be looked at, reviewed to make it fairer. Um, Personally, I'd probably like to see a complete review of education, but that would be a huge undertaking. Um, But that means probably it should be done, not that it shouldn't be done, you know, to see both for university students and up through the education system as a whole.
0: The Liberal Democrats are a centrist party. Rishi Sunak is a more moderate Conservative than his predecessor, Liz Truss, and the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, is also closer to the centre ground of British politics than his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. It is also very possible that the next election will not have a party with a majority. Should the Liberal Democrats enter an, into another coalition with the Conservatives or Labour?
1: I, I think the party will be very careful of doing that with either party, especially with the Conservatives, because while Rishi Sunak is more moderate than Liz Truss, I mean, I think the, the, part, the Conservative Party as a whole has moved further to the right. And I think a lot of their policy... Their policies just wouldn't. Uh, I really couldn't even see, think it would be extremely difficult um, to work with uh, the current government uh, as it is, the government as it is at the moment. But I think, and I think, although personally I'm a supporter of coalition government, it doesn't. It didn't um, for the Liberal Democrats being in coalition with the Tories. It didn't. Um, mistakes were made and a lot of uh, people didn't support the idea of coalition, uh, that it might be better to do what was done in the past, or even in the 70s, have forms of agreement whereby, for example, with Labour, if to vote for certain policies, um, that's the Lib Lab Pact of the past. But these are things I'm not up to the minute, to be honest, with what our own party uh, is thinking, what the thinking is at the moment. on how that would go. I mean, obviously, the principle of working with other parties in some way is, um, yeah, is one that the Liberal Democrats would be are happy to do. But coalition, and I, no, I mean, I think I think Ed Davey has said that he wouldn't want a coalition um, at the moment, anyway.
0: A coalition with either party.
1: I think with either party, but don't definitely not yeah. with the Conservatives as they are now. Um, What I simply don't know what the party said on labour because I was like, yeah, so I would have to check that.
0: You mentioned earlier about the difficulties with being a Lib Dem in Labour majority area. Do you think there are any benefits to representing a smaller party at a local level?
1: I think that I well, I think there are benefits. Well, it's it's a question of learning how to work really. I'm learning how to work as an opposition party um, because I'm learning how the council works and there are roles that, you know, it's an opposition party. It's sort of our job to ask questions and keep asking questions to sort of... Not necessarily because the, there is something wrong with um, a policy where it might not be being implemented properly or there just might be uh, the case of, you know, the unintended consequences of policies. So I think as a smaller party, it is our job to ask questions to... Um, keep challenging the way things are done Um, and it certainly gives us some resolve to get out there and sort of get talking to people and and, and quite probably we work harder because we know we have to work harder um, because we are a minority.
0: We oftentimes see that at a national level politics can be quite toxic do you think that's reflected at a local level or is it a lot friendlier?
1: well, I think it's a lot friendlier at a local level. I mean, there, are, there can be, obviously it's to do with people, and so there can be different clashes, or different, but I think it's um, much friendlier at a local level.
0: I see that you're on Twitter. Do you believe that it's a valuable tool for our democracy or a platform for division?
1: Whoa, that's a good question. <laughs> um, because I joined Twitter initially um, as a... Way of finding out more sort of about the literary worlds and when in fact the one of the books I translated first came out sort of to help promote that and connect with other people sort of, on literary issues and that 's still mainly what I use it for and i haven 't set up yet um, just because I didn 't get around to it a sort of proper Twitter account as a counselor and now, with the changes in Twitter and the new ownership, how desirable that is i 'm not sure. Um, The problem with Twitter is it can be a platform for many things Um, and it can be very divisive, um, misleading, uh, unpleasant. It can also be a source of all sorts of information (laughs) Um, and it can be very useful. Um, So I suppose I feel a bit divided about it. But I think the problems can apply to all social media. I'm sure some are better than others at filtering out um, uh, abuse or uh, other problems online. so it's a tool that can be used for good or bad.
0: So you're not convinced by the new ownership of Elon Musk, then? I'm, I'm still waiting to see what happens. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any ambitions going forward?
1: Um. Well, ambitions to see. Well, ambitions, I suppose, for Reading the country as a whole. It's really, you know, we want to see to see the town continue to thrive and to do better, to be able to um, help uh, the proportion. You know, Reading as a town, it's, it's got some very big gaps between the more affluent areas and the, much, you know, the, and the areas that are struggling and areas of deprivation. And we want to see the, that gap being closed as the areas of, de- of things get better for people who are struggling um, at the moment. And unfortunately, the outlook isn't very good this year or, or next year. But the ambitions are, I think, for, for Reading to emerge stronger from this period. Um, but that's going to be a difficult thing to,
0: to manage. And for you personally, have you got another memoir that you've got your eye on that you'd like to translate? Oh, or? I've got,
1: yes, I've got uh, various other novels I'd like to translate that I'm pitching to publishers at the moment. Um, that's quite a difficult thing to catch someone, you know, to get someone interested and then to uh, publish interested and then to agree to, to take on a novel from another part of the world.
0: And finally, do you have any advice to any aspiring young local politicians?
1: Well, get involved, absolutely, yeah. Um, I'd say don't, you know, don't. And also, my advice would also be if you're interested in politics, there's a whole range of jobs in politics, or I say jobs, or things you can do, and they could be jobs later. Uh, It doesn't have to be, I know we think of, say, as an MP or as a councillor, but if you're still interested in politics but interested in another way, uh, managing campaigns, about organising the party, producing campaign literature. There's all sorts of um, different kinds of work and skills that are needed. And in fact, if you're someone um, and you feel a sense of horror, the thought of going and knocking on someone's door that you don't know and talking to them about politics, it doesn't mean you can't get involved. There's plenty of other things that you can do um, that are useful. So I'd say get involved and help shape it and help shape politics the way you think it should go. Um, that's what I'd say to young people You know, don't hold back at all and realise that you know, it's not something that you do sort of on your own it's part of a team and it can be a lot of fun
0: Councillor Anne Thompson thank you so much for your time today it's been really fascinating
1: you're welcome, thank you very much for having me
0: thank you